You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash Ellison Center. Good evening. Uh, welcome to the panel, uh, Politics of Memory in Eastern Europe, Ukraine, and Russia, 30 years after the Berlin Wall. 30 years ago, uh, not tonight, but actually November 9th, was the day border guards in Germany first opened checkpoints in Berlin, allowing people to cross into the West. The day is a symbolic marker of the end of division of Europe and what many people hoped would be a new era of European unity and democratic progress. With 30 years of hindsight, that hope looked partially borne out, but this anniversary feels somewhat different from the 10th or the 20th. How we mark any anniversary is always connected with how people experience the present. At a time of rising authoritarianism and populism, history is very much up for debate. History is never static or settled. It is bound up with identity, nationalism, and power struggles over the right to interpret the past. These struggles over memory are ongoing and highly relevant in the countries east of the so-called Iron Curtain. Uh, today, uh, we convene a panel of three experts who will discuss the politics and history uh, and identity of four countries that have dealt with the past in different ways. They'll take stock of the last 30 years and maybe shed light on where the countries of the region are heading. Uh, I'm Scott Ravitz, and I'm the director of the Ellison Center for Russian, Eastern European, and uh, Central Asian Studies. This is uh, the week of uh, anniversary-related events. Yesterday, uh, Professor Bill Hill, who was speaking tonight, uh, presented on his book. Tomorrow, Connor O'Dwyer uh, will also present his book. Um, but for now, we'll get to the program. I'm going to introduce the speakers uh, as, uh, as their turn comes up, and we're going to go for... Um, uh, an hour and a half and end at eight. So our first speaker is Connor O'Dwyer. He's associate professor of political science at the University of Florida. He specializes in comparative politics with a thematic focus on LGBT politics, social movements, democratization, and the state, with a regional emphasis on Eastern Central Europe and the European Union. He's the author of Coming Out of Communism, The Emergence of LGBT Activism in Eastern Europe, which was published last year and which we'll talk about tomorrow. Uh, and a 2006 book, Running, Runaway State Building, Patronage, Politics, and Democratic Development. So we will start with Connor. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Radnitz. Uh, thank you to the staff of the Ellison Center. Uh, thank you all for coming um, and for the invitation to come here tonight. Um, so I begin by asking, you know, where does politics stand in Poland and the Czech Republic today, 30 years after 1989? And as um, the introduction just made, brought, brought to mind, it's, it's hardly a surprise for this audience that, you know, many are alarmed at the state of politics and society 30 years um, after the revolutions in these countries. In Poland, since 2015, the government has rested in the hands of a hard right populist radical political party law and justice. They just renewed their government uh, majority uh, a few weeks ago. And over time, you know, observers have documented a steady trend of backsliding attempts to pack the judiciary with 
peace-friendly judges, takeover of state media, installation of one-sided pro-government news, uptick in xenophobic and anti-minority rhetoric by political elites, and strong Eurosceptic positions. Um, in the Czech Republic, uh, the arrival of an outsider, this oligarch Andrei Babish and his Ano party, have upended the political establishment and installed a government that uh, has raised concerns about checks and balances um, and the strength of democratic institutions. Babish is a kind of Czech Berlusconi, um, one of the wealthiest businessmen in the country. His wealth is a co combination of kind of murky privatization and questionable state subsidies. And he founded an anti-corruption party, uh, ANO, in 2012 and became prime minister in 2017. It's very huge conflicts of interest between his business interests and his political responsibilities. Um, he's also bought the largest Czech uh, media outlets and is also quite Eurosceptic, though not quite as nationalist as, as uh, peace is in Poland. This summer, you may have noticed or may have read that the uh, largest demonstrations since 1989 were held in Prague, um, kind of anti-government, anti-Babish uh, demonstrations. And I just put here this slide from uh, one of the various uh, kind of indicators of liberal democracy you can find. This is the varieties of democracy. And just to kind of show, you know, uh, that you can see that Poland has, has really, in the last you know, few years, dropped dramatically um, in terms of the quality of its democracy. And, and the Czech Republic has kind of a, a slower but still perceptible um, decrease. So I think um, today I'd like to talk about narratives as perhaps more than memories. And I would make a slight distinction between narratives as slightly more perspective looking and, and, and memories as, as more about identity. But of course, the two are related. Um, but I wanted to think about two interlocking questions. What were the relative narratives of political development in East Central Europe after 1989? And to what extent do these narratives help make sense of politics today? And I think there, you know, when I was thinking about this, I, I think there are basically, I would suggest, three big narratives of post-communism that kind of defined post-communism. One was the narrative of transition. The other was kind of the narrative of nation. And the third was a narrative of the return to Europe. And so first, sort of say a little about what those mean and, and then like what they look like today. Um, so the narrative of transition is very familiar to those of us who have observed or studied Eastern Europe since the 1990s or earlier. Um, it's been criticized from many angles, both by scholars and citizens. Um, but at the same time, it has a kind of undeniable intuitiveness, I'd say, uh, that deeply shaped about how we thought about post-communism. And this narrative, post-communism, is structured in terms of a few basic polarities. Economic statism versus free market principles, gradualism versus radical reform, illiberal closed politics versus political pluralism, former communists versus former opposition, left versus right, just kind of implicit in, in, in that. And the transition, uh, offered to, uh, and there's a kind of transition narrative that it offers a goal uh, and a yardstick for measuring progress, sort of moving uh, between these polarities. The second narrative is, is the narrative of nation. And um, I think this was an, another important aspect of thinking about uh, understanding post-communism. And it's that of reasserting national identity after a kind of enforced adherence uh, to an artificial transnational 
uh, vision of socialist brotherhood um, on, on, under the experience of communism. And so post-communism in this perspective is kind of about redefining who has membership in the national community. And um, you know, you, you can read like the history a little differently when you think about it in this, in this way. So take the solidarity movement, rather than reading kind of solidarity as this uh, trade union that, that played in politics and that was centrally concerned with you know, political pluralism and reforming a centrally state economy, you could see solidarity as, as actually a kind of independence movement, um, as a kind of escape from Soviet domination. And you, know, you could look at the kind of heavily Catholic iconography and the links to later nationalists like the Kaczynskis, um, who were the heads of, of Law and Justice Party. Um, a third narrative uh, is the narrative of returning to Europe. And you know, almost as soon as the Berlin Wall fell, um, East Central European countries began to talk about returning to Europe. Um, and the return is very important because it sort of suggested that they were never part of the East to begin with. Um, and so in a way, this was complementary to the narrative of nation. Um, but it was also in tension with the narrative of nation because returning to Europe found its institutional embodiment in joining the European Union. Um, and since you know, the European Union is a kind of post-national, transnational governmental experiment, um, joining the EU at the same time as trying to reclaim national identity um, required a kind of rhetorical fudging um, by the political elites. Um, and I think like the trans and I would also say that like the transition narrative, there was a kind of yardstick of progress here, which was Europeanization. So you could kind of think about like how Europeanized our, our country is becoming. So the, the second question that um, I would bring up and discuss tonight uh, is to think about how well these narratives, which I think really kind of set the parameters for how we thought about post-communism for a long time, how well they structure politics now, um, and especially uh, thinking about what extent they fit with populism, and maybe to what extent they might feed populism. So beginning with the transition narrative, um, you know, as I said, this was a very important and defining feature. Um, but I don't think this narrative still resonates that strongly um, in Poland or the Czech Republic. So first of all, um, you know, the economic transition was completed uh, some time ago. And you know, we could probably talk about that in some more detail. But the second slide I had just uh, showed kind of per capita GDP um, in the Czech Republic, Poland, and the European Union over time. And you know, you, you can you know, see from this that you know, they still haven't reached EU levels, but there's a kind of convergence and, and a very kind of you know, noticeable um, and steady increase. One doesn't really find, I think, a debate about the institutions of the free market uh, anymore in these countries. There is talk about redistribution and inequality, but not about the Washington consensus or sort of elements of the Washington consensus or gradual versus radical reform. Um, and I think Poland is a, Poland's Law and Justice Party is an excellent example of how the kind of economic trans, transition logic uh, has changed um, and the kind of implicit left versus right um, or gradual versus radical um, elements of that uh, kind of transition logic. So on, on cultural issues, peace is strongly on the right. 
But on economic issues, it looks statist. It looks redistributist, re redistributive. Um, you know, for example, you've probably heard about this 500 plus program where, um, you know, very cleverly, uh, it's a great way to get uh, support. Uh, for each child you have, the, the, the Polish state gives 500 złoty a month, um, which is significant, especially, you know, for, for larger families and, you know, outside the bigger cities. There's also a program, of, you know, increasing bonuses uh, or pensions for elder, uh, for retirees. And these are really quite left policies, but they're in a right uh, party that's, that's, that's using them. <coughs> I think that the, uh, the kind of liberal, in terms of the political aspect of transition, the kind of the liberal character of institutions is still uh, is a major topic of populists. But at least in, in my kind of reading, I think there's a, a change in the environment about thinking about um, liberalism from the 1990s or 2000s. Um, you know, earlier I think the division line was between former communists and former opposition. Um, and, and, and Poland always had a very fluid party system, but, but there was still this kind of sharp division between the former solidarity and the former communist. Um, but now, you know, the left has largely kind of disappeared from, from, Polish, com, uh, from Polish politics and, and solidarity, you know, the kind of post-solidarity group are ascendant and, and it's no longer kind of so much a talk about sort of uh, the danger of crypto-communists, but the danger of liberals, you know, so liberals are, are, are the danger. Um, and in the Czech Republic, um, you know, the former communists were always kind of pariahs in the uh, political system and there was a pretty sharp division between the left and right. But now, if you look at the Anno party, Babish's party, um, you know, it has the, the rest on the support of the communists, and it was in coalition with the Social Democrats. And, but at that same time, he's kind of the businessman politician, you know, um, the kind of competent manager. So it's just the kind of left-right distinction seems to have, have dissolved in a, in a major way. And what is kind of structuring the political narrative is not transition, but, but corruption. Um, and this is the point of, of similarity in Poland and the Czech Republic. Um, and I, I think um, it's not just a national level story. It was interesting, I was doing some research um, this past summer on kind of local or municipal politics, city politics um, in Prague and in Warsaw. And it's quite noticeable there that you have um, you know, the rise of these uh, new outsider or you know, new parties at the level of city politics, um, they're populist, but they're kind of populist of the left, and they're directed against kind of corrupt real estate development and, and this kind of, um, you know, encroaching on green spaces. And so it's this very kind of uh, direct populist kind of movement um, in both countries. And, and so, and you have these, you know, in, in Prague city government, you have the pirate party, you know, now uh, in the, in controlling the mayorship and, and a new group called like Prague itself or Prague for itself. Um, in, in Warsaw, you have this two parties, the, the city is ours and Warsaw wins. And these are these kind of new parties that have come, but from the left, and, but they have the same kind of anti-corruption um, kind of narrative. So thinking about uh, the narrative of nation, to what extent does this um, still work in terms of thinking about politics? I think it works well in some places. It works well in Poland. It works well in Hungary. I don't think it works as well in the Czech Republic. Um, the most telling example of this in Poland, I think, is uh, the politics of LGBT rights. We'll talk a bit more about that tomorrow. Um, 
But LGBT rights have come to be seen as a kind of alien agenda, largely associated with the EU, that threatens kind of the established conception of the national community. Um, and this has occurred at various points in the last 30 years. So currently, we're in a moment of this. But um, previously, in around 2004, 2007, in that uh, space, there was a strong kind of period of anti-gay politics. Um, and as I said, just the past year, um, it's, it's come up again with this uh, decision of the Warsaw city government. Again, it's kind of the city government is becoming um, more prominent for city politics. Um, but they kind of proposed this, this uh, charter of, of, of uh, more tolerant policies towards LGBT people. Um, and it provoked a massive kind of backlash on the right. Um, there were also the declaration of LGBT-free zones in many you know, provincial towns um, in Russia, or sorry, in Poland. I'd say another indication of the kind of still resonance of this kind of reassertion of national identity in Poland is the politics of uh, World War II and the Holocaust. Um, you know, it was about 20 years ago that Jan Gross's book, uh, Neighbors, came out and provoked a huge debate in Poland about the Holocaust. Um, more recently, in 2018, there was an infamous kind of law about Polish death camps. Um, and uh, so again, this, this kind of uh, attempt to redefine the nation and, and think about how to incorporate groups that were somehow excluded or overlooked during uh, <coughs> communism. As I said, in the Czech Republic, I'd say this is less integral um, in thinking about populism. Babish is not really a nationalist. Um, he's more about corruption and, and Euroscepticism. So that brings us to the final point, which is thinking about the return to Europe narrative. Um, EU membership was the number one foreign policy goal for most governments after 1989. I'd say now when you think about kind of the EU and um, it's, you know, this story about, about becoming part of the EU, I'd say there's resonance, but also ambivalence, um, which is another way of saying that EU membership is valued, um, but Europeanization, the idea of convergence uh, with other countries, is increasingly rejected. Um, so you know, on the one hand, you have you know, figures I saw recently that 86% of Poles feel that EU membership is, uh, is beneficial to their country, but you know, then they elect government like peace, which, uh, you know, clashes directly with the EU and is now being you know, kind of a process of censure by the EU. I'd, I'd say that you know, it could be pointed out that this kind of Euroscepticism and rejection of um, ever greater Europeanization, in some ways, is somewhat paradoxical because we see the same thing in West Europe, right? We see uh, this kind of movement in Germany and Austria and France and Holland and Italy. And so you know, one way, one kind of read on this is that you know maybe this is a sign that they're becoming just like the rest of West Europe, right? Uh, and you know, post-communism post and the post-communist narratives are over. Um, I'd say in some ways there's something to this argument, and this is my final point, but I would say that um, the kind of populism uh, East and populism West are not carbon copies of each other. So um, in West Europe, the kind of anti or Euroskeptic populism is strongly a feature of the politics of austerity and kind of economic outsourcing and, and globalization. But I don't think this link is uh, very s satisfying in, in thinking about Poland and the Czech Republic and sort of the, the, the nature of Euroskepticism there. Um, 
as we saw earlier, both countries have been you know, doing very well economically over time, um, continually. Um, they, neither of them were deeply touched by the financial crisis. Poland never experienced a recession at all. It's kind of been growing for the last you know, 20 years. Um, the Czech Republic is also doing well. Um, I'd say uh, the second kind of difference from the West is that while intolerance is a feature of both West and East European uh, populism, at least in Poland, it strikes me that the social character of this intolerance is different. In Poland, it's, it's, there's a kind of neo-traditionalism to it. Um, the example of LGBT politics, I think, really shows this. Um, in West Europe, populists are primarily anti-immigrant. Um, but I think um, you know, gender and sexuality is not as central to the kind of uh, West European understanding of, of populism. In fact, sometimes kind of gender and sexuality uh, can be used as an, a, a kind of progressive gender and uh, progressive gender and sexuality um, stance can be used as an argument against immigrants uh, from more traditional societies in Western Europe. But it's kind of hard to imagine Poland, say, for example, using that argument against immigrants that um, they they aren't as progressive as we are on, on gender and, and LGBT issues. So, um, so I think maybe uh, we're, I've reached my time. So I, I think I've probably given you a lot to, to think about, hopefully. Um, and I look forward to questions and discussion afterwards. So. Uh, so now we will be moving uh, from west to east. Uh, so next up is Ukraine, which is always sandwiched between uh, Central Europe and Russia. Our speaker will be Lada Bilanyuk, who is a professor of anthropology here at UW. Her research interests <coughs> include language politics and language ideology in Ukraine, purism and mixed languages, discourse analysis, gender, race, nationalism, and popular culture. Her book, Contested Tongues, Language Politics and Cultural Correction in Ukraine, was published in 2005, and she's also published many articles on language ideology, surgic, rock in Ukraine, and language politics on television. Awesome. Thank you for this opportunity to reflect on 30 years. Uh, my specialty is language politics and language ideology. So what I'm gonna do is look at these last 30 years through the prism of language laws in Ukraine. So language laws, this is not as much memory. I think, like, like Connor says, this is more about narratives. These are visions of what is desired. A language law puts forward a vision, and it balances state-building efforts and ethics in, in what it envisions. So I'm going to look at four main laws, starting with the very influential 1989 law, which was still a law of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, Law and Language, then the 1996 Constitution, then the 2012 law, which a year ago was deemed unconstitutional, and then 2017-2019 uh, Law and Education and Law on Language. Uh, so we'll start our trajectory with the 1989 law, and uh, basically, it declared Ukraine the state language. And this is before Ukraine was an independent country. So, but it declared the state language. And one thing that I found striking was that it actually uses the wording, 
highlighted in yellow here and translated into English, that the purpose for making Ukrainian the state language was to guarantee the future of the sovereign nation statehood of the Ukrainian people. So this is interesting that, that a Soviet law was saying this. In this uh, whole law, the only other language that is mentioned by name is Russian, specifically as a language of international communication, but then they do mention Russian a lot in various other governmental and administrative uh, roles. For schooling, both Ukrainian and Russian are mandatory to learn. And then there is this sort of more general uh, rights to use other languages are protected. So uh, this law was uh, critical in, actually all of the former Soviet republics passed some sort of law like this, making their languages, their official languages right before independence. Uh, for Ukraine, it was a major effort to try to elevate the status of Ukrainian. I put this picture of the Soviet ruble here. So you see in very large print, Adin ruble in Russian. And then underneath, you have all of the languages of the other republics. The first one, Odin Karbovanic, is in Ukrainian. So this ideal of multilingualism, multiculturalism, is something that the 1989 law retained by saying that it supports everybody's rights to use their language, to have schooling in their language. But like this, this ruble, it's, it's like Russian being first among equals. This effort was to sought to improve the status of Ukrainian, at least the way the law is written. It seeks to place Ukrainian as first among equals, along with Russian, or maybe Ukrainian first, then Russian. Uh, I first came to Ukraine as an adult in 91 for, for my research, and at that point, the central building on the Independence Square was still Hotel Moskva, and Lenin was still standing there, but with this lovely uh, fence around him where what it says in Ukrainian is, we apologize for the temporary inconvenience. <laughs> so uh, they, and then while I was there, they dismantled um, Lenin. And uh, at that time, you could hardly hear any Ukrainian in public in Kiev. At the market where people from villages had come, you know, you, you could hear some Ukrainian in people's homes who were Ukrainian speakers, they'd speak Ukrainian. But at that point, it was actually quite rare to hear uh, Russian on the streets, hence the law being more momentous in putting forward uh, Ukrainian as the state language. So 1996, uh, the Constitution of Ukraine, in a way, reaffirmed what the 1989 law did. It made, in the Constitution, Ukrainian as the state language. And the Constitution mentions Russian once, when it says that the free development, use, and protection of Russian and other languages of national minorities of Ukraine is guaranteed. So, Russian is singled out, but as a language of national minorities. Uh, they, in education, only Ukrainian is required. And uh, the right to schooling in native language is guaranteed. What it says is citizens who belong to national minorities are guaranteed the right to receive instruction in their native language or to study their native language in state and communal educational establishments and through national cultural society. There's that or. They don't actually say if the government is going to pay for this education, and it is not required. So that's a pretty major change from the 1989 law in terms that 
only Ukrainian is required. And then for the uh, language of international communication, which was the label for Russian in the previous law, uh, here it just says that the state shall promote the learning of languages of international communication. Doesn't say what those might be. So if we compare the two laws, both of them affirm Ukrainian as a state language. The 1989 one uh, mentions Russian a lot as a uh, language of international communication and for government and administrative use alongside Russian. Whereas in the Constitution 96, Russian is just mentioned once as a minority language to be protected with others. The international language is promoted, but not with, they don't say what it is. And then in education, Ukrainian and Russian required in 1989, but only Ukrainian required in 1986. Both have, have rhetoric that talks about the right to learn in other languages. So going from the laws to uh, what the actual situation was, in 1991, uh, the language of instruction in schools in Ukraine was about 45% Ukrainian, 54% Russian. And it's actually more skewed than that because in urban areas, there were far fewer Ukrainian schools available. So in Kiev at the time, uh, less than a fifth of the, well, 23% uh, of the schools were in the Ukrainian language of instruction. So the vast majority were in Russian. Jumping ahead to 2005, so in part the influence of the constitution, you then had uh, the language of instructions in schools more reflective of the ethnic population. So 78% Ukrainian, 21% Russian, 1% other languages. So there were schools that had the teaching medium be Crimean Tatar or Polish or Hungarian. So as far as the situation, the last census was the 2001 census, and it found that people <laughs> defined their ethnicity or what, nationalnost, as 78% um, Ukrainian, 17% Russian, and the 5% are other uh, ethnic identities. They also asked native language, and there it's, uh, there is more representation of Russian, so 68% of Ukrainians said their native language is Ukrainian, and 30% said Russian. And this led to what was very often the map that you would get in US news that shows Ukraine kind of split between more Ukrainian native language and more Russian native language. Although some of the blue shaded areas, it's only like 20%. But more recently, uh, a, a more fine-grained view of these 2001 statistics has been made available. So if you look at Kharkiv, the northeast oblast, uh, more closely, so there you can see on the map where it is. And this is by smaller divisions within Kharkiv oblast. And you can see that really it's the city and one other region where the majority of people have Russian as a native language. And that is typical in many areas in eastern and southern Ukraine that the countryside, the rural areas, people as uh, native language, people use Ukrainian more. So for the whole map of Ukraine, this is more what it looks like. Uh, and you can definitely see that areas that had over 50% uh, people who identified with Russian as a native language, indeed Crimea, uh, which is now taken over by Russia. And you can see there is more in the areas that are now 
not under Ukrainian control, but not completely. The, the rural areas still uh, had a lot of Russian there. Okay, so the Constitution is making Ukrainian official, the, the, the state language only requiring Ukrainian education, but the actual situation uh, was not quite so beneficial for Ukrainian. So in 2009, for example, these are statistics on television channel programming. The official statistics, which showed Ukrainian 75%, 74% in Ukrainian language and a quarter in Russian, with the unofficial, the actual measurements of what was broadcast showing that uh, more than half of broadcasts were in Russian. Also, a survey also from 2009 showed that the population was split about in thirds with what language they mostly used at home, Ukrainian, Russian, or a combination of the two. If you look at publications, it's even more unfavorable to Ukrainian. Um, with newspapers, um, about a third, uh, two-thirds of available more in <coughs> Russian. Books in Ukraine's market and magazines, 13 to 10% of what is available. So despite this very affirming law, the Constitution, Ukrainian uh, was not in a great situation in terms of what was available in the media. So a lot of people felt that they still needed to fight to support Ukrainian, but then um, in 2012, when Yanukovych was in power, the 2012 law on principles of state language policy came along. And in terms of the narratives that it drew upon, it referred to the European Union um, ideals, it referred to the charter on regional and minority languages of the European Union um, as ideals for what, for what it's drawing on. And it also referred to the Soviet principle that it's an unalienable right to choose the language of instruction for your children. And in this law, it listed 18 minority languages to be protected, and Russian just one of them, along with Bulgarian, Armenian, Gagos, Yiddish, Crimean, Tatar, and so on. And, but then it repeatedly named Russian as an option for official uses alongside or instead of Ukrainian. And the other specifics, this is one of the first laws that actually mentions English. So English is mentioned with Ukrainian and Russian as a language for a computer science. And the main result of this was that Russian was made an official language in several regions. So the Constitution says that Ukrainian is the state language, but this law, which was long, you know, there's been a lot of back and forth over the laws, but this law uh, tried to de facto make Russian like an official state language in some regions. There's a long and complicated history to what happened with this law. Last year it was deemed unconstitutional, so it is no longer active. And it was called the Kivalov Kolisnichenko Law, these two guys who were the main legislators who put it forward. And as, if you can read the sign in the bottom, it, it talks about this law as if it was written in the Kremlin. So it was seen as something, you know, very much a product of Yanukovych's close ties with Russia and beneficial to Russia. So, Soon after 2012 came 2014, which as you know was the revolution of dignity, the Euromaidan protests. And here are some stickers that 
put forward the narratives, the ideals of this time. And one of them, the red one, it says, this is not against Russia. This is against the scorn or, or, or bullying or putting down Ukrainian language. The other ones say, this isn't for Europe, but for a clean conscience. This isn't for Europe, but against uh, the judges mafia. And this isn't for Europe, but this is against um, bribes in tax inspections. So that was part of the ideology of the time. And specifically, the idea that Ukrainian needed to be respected, and that was part of European-type ideals. So jumping ahead then to um, 2017, so uh, Yanukovych left, Crimea taken over by Russia, the whole conflict in eastern Ukraine, and, and the people in power actually putting a lot more effort into promoting Ukrainian. So I'm going to talk about the 2017 and, and last year's 2019 law in tandem. The 2017 law on education, um, it reaffirmed that Ukrainian is the state language and it has a central role in education. And it mentions national minorities and indig indigenous people. So what the 2012 law tried to do with listing Russian among other national minorities, including ones that are indigenous only in Ukrainian territory and not spoken elsewhere, like Crimean Tatar, uh, trying to distinguish that by using different language. So um, they singled out that uh, national minorities and indigenous peoples can have education in parallel with Ukrainian. So not, there, there, there were cases of school where kids never really learned Ukrainian if that wasn't their language of instruction. It's the first time that Ukrainian sign language is mentioned for the deaf population, affirming that that is supported. And as far as international communication, uh, the state supports the learning of languages of international communication, first of all, English. So English is starting to have a bigger presence in this narrative. Um, also, uh, one or more disciplines may be taught in two or more languages, the state language, English language, or other official languages of the European Union. So Russian is not mentioned at all in this law, so that's kind of a, a, a stark uh, change. And English is mentioned more, and language of the, of the European Union shows a change in orientation. And the 2019 law, which is called On Ensuring the Functioning of Ukrainian as a State Language, because I mentioned Ukrainian has been a state language since 1989, but you can see that in publications and you know, schooling, it wasn't exactly that supported or necessarily um, uh, not everybody had access to it. So the 2019 law requires Ukrainian in public usage. So not in, in private conversations, people can have them how they like, but in education, in culture, in um, publications, that's what that uh, little sign says. In all these different spheres, Ukrainian is required. It also reaffirms what the law on education said. And <coughs> there's special consideration in this law for Crimean Tatar and other languages of the indigenous peoples of Ukraine. 
So Korinyi Narode is what they call them. So in government, in the media, in public events, they, they get special consideration where they can use that language. It doesn't have to be, um, have parallel publications in Ukrainian. And there's also special consideration for English and other official languages of the European Union, especially in publications. So if you put out a newspaper in Russian, you have to have an equal um, print run in Ukrainian. That is not the case for Crimean Tatar or English or other languages of the EU. And this law does not mention Russian at all. So um, Ukraine right now is pretty much between the spheres of two lingua franca, lingua francas, um, English and Russian. And especially given the political situation, so highlighted in red, the areas that Russia has uh, a part in, the, the war in the separatist regions, Crimea, we also have Transnistria, the areas in Georgia there. And undoubtedly, this war has been a turning point where people uh, who were bilingual, who were very casual about switching from Ukrainian to Russian, all of a sudden were like, wait a second, this, this, this is, this is a different matter. Not everybody. Ukraine is, still very, Ukraine is still very bilingual, but there are many people who've decided to make a switch and uh, feel differently about the, the laws and what their children should learn. And since I just have a couple of minutes, I won't spend too much time on this, but there's been a lot of active promotion of English in recent years, Year of English Language, then 2017 was a campaign to teach civil, ser civil servants Ukrainian, there's summer language camps to learn English. And Sviatoslav Vakarchuk of Okean Elze, rock star and politician, he actually has this quote, teaching children English is as important as teaching them to use a fork and spoon. Otherwise, we will be left behind. So um, English is visible in signage, you know, metro. It'll be written in Ukrainian and English. Um, in popular and commercial spheres, you get a lot of English usage and interesting um, combinations. Um, and something, since I, I actually am more interested not as much in laws, but what people do with it, uh, just massive influx of Anglicisms in Ukrainian usage, uh, both in casual use and in um, E even in more official public usage. So to conclude, this 30-year trajectory of language laws shows how this sort of scaffolding has been built, both for nation building with the model of Ukrainian as a language for Ukraine, in part spurred by the uh, Crimean annexation and Russia's uh, role in the conflict in the East, which has made that opposition much more poignant and more clear to some people that Ukrainian has to be emblematic for Ukrainian nation building, but also globalization, because English and the languages of the European Union are playing a larger role in terms of at least how the language laws are orienting things. Thanks. And last but never least is Russia. William H. Hill is Professor Emeritus of National Security Strategy at the National War College in Washington, D.C., and a Global Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center. 
a retired foreign service officer who served um, in various positions in Europe. Uh, Bill Hill has worked at various points in his career for the U.S. Department of State, the Department of Defense, uh, and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. He is the author of a new book, No Place for Russia, European Security Institutions Since 1989. Um, thanks very much, Scott. And, uh, and thanks to you and your colleagues from the Ellison Institute for including me in the program. Um, this, as you'll see, the, this anniversary uh, has for me some personal significance. Uh, you know, you talk about history. Um, I was trained as an historian, and in Soviet Russia, there was a long-standing joke about history that uh, the present never changes, but the history does. Um, uh, we face a similar witticism or, or situation today. Uh, historians and politicians' views of the legacy uh, of the, f and the reasons for the, the aftermath of the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, their views were much more optimistic on the 20th anniversary. Uh, and you'd think uh, the, the event had a very different meaning from the meaning that it seems to have on the 30th, this 30th anniversary coming up. Uh, the historical facts of the events in 1989 may not have changed, but our view of their significance <coughs> and their influence certainly has. Uh, now, my personal views and my personal experience epitomize the main Western narrative of the end of the Cold War, the post-Cold War era, the significance of the fall of Berlin. This is not because I'm so smart or you know anything else. It's, it's simply... You know, I come from a generation for whom uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the events before and after it, really had a special significance. I mean, I was 44 years old when the Berlin Wall came down. Uh, I grew up with the Cold War in the 1970s. I studied in the Soviet Union. In the 1980s, I served in the Soviet Union in uh, our embassy in Moscow and our consulate in Leningrad. I traveled all over the Soviet Union, near and far. Uh, and, you know, within the Russian Republic and most of the other Soviet republics. I grew accustomed to and even comfortable with the U.S.-Soviet rivalry. Uh, like all creations of mankind, I knew that this had to end someday, but I couldn't imagine how this could happen, how this would be in my lifetime. Um, well, I was... Uh, director of broadcasts for the Voice of America uh, in 1989 and on the e uh, director of broadcasts to Europe for you know, at VOA and the evening of Thursday November 9th 1989 as usual I was working late afternoon early evening in my office <clears throat> reading you know correspondence reports and other things from the field and as usual I had a TV in my office and this night it was, I remember it was turned by chance to uh, NBC rather than CNN. And I looked up from these cables coming in from the field and all of a sudden I see Tom Brokaw there in front of a picture of the Berlin Wall. And people are climbing over the Berlin Wall, they're tearing it apart, nobody's stopping them. And Tom Brokaw is as astounded as I am and everybody else there as we, you know, we, we look at it. Um, November 9th, 1989, you have to say, is, is the most 
for me at least, it's perhaps the most memorable day in a period from 1986 to 1992 when almost a half century of Cold War ended and a new world order was born. And the, the point is, this, this happens so rarely in one's experience, we were conscious at the time that this was a change of an epoch. Something was ending and something new was coming. We didn't know what was coming, but you, one certainly had the sense that this was an historical moment like no other uh, in one's lifetime. Uh, monumental changes were underway and, and they, they've continued. They led to the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union and the emergence of an independent free Russia. Historians today argue whether the Cold War actually ended with the fall of the Berlin Wall. I think that you could take the signing of the INF Treaty in early 1988, uh, Gorbachev's December 1988 speech to the uh, UN, or the George H.W. Bush Gorbachev summit in Malta in the midst of a terrible storm in the harbor at Malta. Um, in December 1989 as other good candidates to, to mark this general event. Uh, with respect to Russia and the end of the Cold War, the key point was that Moscow seized for us, for the United States, for American officials like me, for all of us, it seized to be a threat and an enemy. The U.S. and its allies accepted and supported Russia's stated intentions to build a democratic polity and a market economy, and we adopted a policy of integrating Russia into Western and global institutions. The operative phrase at that time was to build a Europe whole and free from Vancouver to Vladivostok. Uh, this policy, I believe, lasted in in its basic outlines until Russia's seizure and annexation of Crimea in March 2014 and the launching of the war in eastern Ukraine. Now, very few Russians at that time echoed President George H.W. Bush's triumphal proclamation of a Western victory in the Cold War as he did in his 1992 State of the Union message about a month after the Soviet Union collapsed. However, many Russians, and perhaps even a majority uh, at the time, originally saw Russia's reform begun by Gorbachev and continued by Yeltsin as a return to European values and the mainstream of European and Western civilization. Many Russians presented the Soviet period as an outlier, as an exception, in, in an anomaly <coughs> in Russian history in which Russia was a threatening outsider rather than an integral part uh, and participant in the European state, uh, European state system and political system. Uh, considerable emphasis was placed on describing and criticizing the crimes and the repression in particular of the Stalin period. Uh, now, today, Russians have developed some striking new and different historical narratives and interpretations uh, to recount and to explain their history, especially the events of the late 1980s and early 1990s uh, up to the present, you know, to explain what has happened, why the relationship that was so hopeful in 1989-90-91 with Gorbachev first and then with Yeltsin, and, and how it went bad. Uh, at a recent high-level international meeting in Sochi I, that I was at last month, Russian political leaders and experts there propagated a general line that Russia is no longer part of the West, nor should it wish to be. 
there are precedents for this argument in Russian intellectual and political history. For example, the Slavophils of the 19th century or the Eurasianists in the late 19th century and throughout the 20th century, and there some of them still around today. However, the, the manner in which this position is expressed now seemed to me uh, seems to me a, an attempt at a more thoroughgoing yet fairly superficial repudiation of the European roots of Russian history and culture, uh, something done out of anger and spite rather than out of deep thinking. Uh, the contemporary Russian political and think tank elite increasingly claim that Western, in particular U.S. policy, before and after the end of the Cold War has always seen Russia as a threat and the aim of this policy has been always to weaken Russia. Some uh, of the more extreme members of this elite even blame the U.S. for the collapse of the USSR. And I would say this is a striking uh, contrast to some you know, more thoughtful Russian analysis, like in particular many of you, some of you may know Yegor Gaidar's you know, really thoughtful treatment of the collapse of the Soviet Union, Gibel Imperia, death of an empire. Um, while the bulk of this discussion in the media and expert publications, as opposed to some academic studies which you know, re remain separate from some of these trends that I cite, uh, the, the, the bulk of this discussion concern events and developments after the end of the Cold War. The gradual revision of the, the narrative about how the Cold War ended and what came after it uh, has also affected how Russians present Western aims and world history during the Cold War, the 1970s, the 1980s, and even before. Uh, these Russians increasingly portray expansion of Western institutions such as NATO and the EU as a premeditated element of a Western policy that is constant, consistent through history to take advantage of Russian weakness to gain geopolitical advantage. In this general school of thought, an increasing number of Russian analysts, in particular politically connected individuals, assert that the U.S. response to the Soviet collapse has been from the outset to push for a unipolar world, leading to destructive interventions in the Balkans, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and Syria, and increasingly point to American failures in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria as evidence of, the, of this chaotic and counterproductive uh, basic element of American DNA and American policy. Uh, Russian political leaders and much of Russian media also charge that the U.S. and its allies have been using democratization a mean, as a means of promoting regime change around the world, particularly in Russia's neighbors and Russia itself. Uh, these were not charges that one heard in the 1990s. They've grown up as, as history has developed. Uh, and without diving deeply into arguments for and against this narrative, I would point to one example that I'm personally acquainted with, which I think demonstrates the relatively recent and political origins of this, na this narrative. And this example is the story of the so-called broken promise made by Secretary of State James Baker in February of 1990 to Gorbachev not to move NATO one inch to the east. Well, the, Baker at the time uh, was referring to Western troops or NATO troops in West Germany and moving to East Germany, uh, not to NATO as a whole. Further, in, in the negotiations over NATO enlargement and the NATO-Russia Founding Act in the 1990s and beyond, even into the early 2000s, 
Even as Moscow made clear it didn't like NATO enlargement, I don't recall hearing any allegations from Russian negotiators of a broken promise. And I, I had considerable opportunity to talk with the chief Russian negotiator about this in the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, Russian criticism of Western conduct and policy after the end of the Cold War uh, has caused Russians also to revise some of their analyses of Soviet domestic and foreign policy history. In effect, uh, there's a tendency, I believe, to see uh, the entire Soviet period as a more, in a more Russian light, as opposed to Soviet ideological, such as you historians, those, some of you may know these as Solovyov, Kluchevsky, uh, the Gosudarstvene, the state, statist school of Russian history uh, or his, historical writing. In other words, to portray the Soviet Union as a national continuation of imperial Russia and a national predecessor, direct predecessor of the contemporary Russian state. Uh, for example, you see Russian criticism of the repressive, anti-democratic nature of the Soviet regime, which was widespread in the era of Glasnost in the early post-Soviet years. This is more and more being replaced by a minimization uh, of the excesses of St Stalin and an, a presentation of these excesses as necessary measures in the construction of a strong state modern economy. There's an emphasis on Russian rather than Soviet features of history and on the building of the Soviet Union as a Russian national state. There's also been a gradual return to glorification of World War II, and, and this, you have to do this carefully, look at it, because they've always glorified World War II, uh, but what was merely outré has become more outré and more in your face as time has gone on, uh, and it, it's more and more presented as a, so, a Russian national feat rather than, than you know, a, a Soviet or, or something accomplished in partnership with allies. Most recently, you've seen a, a number uh, of official defenses of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact as a necessary stratagem in the face of a perfidious West, France and Britain refusing to come to the aid of Czechoslovakia and Poland. Uh, the Soviets had to do this with Hitler in order to buy themselves time, uh, in order to build their, their defenses, preparing for an inevitable Russian-German war. Um, while the secret protocols to the pact are acknowledged, they're minimized or excused or just passed over as these are necessary elements in what Stalin had to do in order to prepare for the war where he actually saved civilization. Um, overall, what I'm describing, I believe, is Russia's use of historical memory today that reflects a country and a leadership that feels isolated alienated from and resentful of Western-created, Western-led, uh, a Western-created and Western-led world order uh, that Moscow hoped and presumed it would join when the Berlin Wall fell, uh, but it didn't work out. I think it's illustrative and instructive that Russian leaders, intellectuals, and historians did not employ uh, or seem to believe many of these historical narratives in the 1990s and even in the early to mid-2000s. Instead, I would argue that these narratives are more the product of political rivalries and disillusionment that built gradually during the three decades uh, since that optimistic moment in 1989. The current gaps, the, the current disparity between Russia's prevailing narratives of recent history and those of the West reflect 
by now such a deep mistrust uh, that it seems to me that these will not disappear anytime soon and they will constitute for some time a great obstacle to, to improving relations or promoting any sort of cooperation. In this sense, we're not back to where we started during the Cold War, points during the Cold War, uh, but both Russian and American societies, while different from the late 1940s, uh, are deeply suspicious of one another we're in a bad place and it's going to take a lot of determination, persistence, and understanding to get out of where we have ended up today. <laughs>